1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Selby Wynne-Schwartz about her book, The Bodies of Others, Drag Dances, and Their Afterlives, which was published this year by the University of Michigan Press. And to anyone listening to this in the future, that means 2019. The Bodies, of Other, the Bodies of Others covers four decades of drag dances and explores the politics of gender in motion. Selby, welcome to New Books on Gender Studies. Thank you so much. Well, and before we start talking about the book, could you tell us a bit um, you know, about yourself, your trajectory, and what led you to write this book? Yes, I can
0: tell you the story of beginning this book um, I think it's a kind of love story, actually, so it has a lot of parts that I didn't see coming. Um, And it began when I was finishing um, grad school. I was at the University of California, Berkeley, doing a doctorate in comparative literature um, with a joint doctorate in medieval studies. So uh, I was reading a lot of dead languages. um, And Uh, Yeah, and I was very happy. I was happy teaching. I was happy um, doing uh, this kind of research. Uh, I was working on medieval poetry and performance. Uh, So in a way, I was already quite interested in gender and performance um, and the crossings over between those, but uh, several hundred years before um, what I'm working on now. So I was just finishing. I was in the last semester of... um, Writing and teaching, and I was teaching a class in comparative literature that was about that was about gender and performance, and specifically about dance. And um, it happened, luckily, to be a semester when the Ballet Trocadera in Monte Carlo was coming to perform at UC Berkeley. Uh, there's a large theater there at Zellerbach Hall, and I thought, who who better to teach my students about gender and performance than the ballerinas of Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo they know m- so much more than I do about uh, this topic so I had a small grant from a um a kind of arts in the classroom um, group at Berkeley and um, it allowed me to invite the artistic director Tori Dobrin of the Ballet Trocadero to come and speak with my students and also to take my students to the dress rehearsal um, of the company and um think all of the things that are uh, true about and maybe even cliched about uh, this kind of love story happened then. So I, I fell, you know, like a coup de foudre, you know, lightning strike um, moment of absolutely falling in love and thinking, oh, this is what I want to do next. This, I just want to be with this company. I just love them. Um, so I, I went to Tori uh, and I said, all those things, and to his absolute credit, he didn't, you know, back away from me. Slowly, <laughs> he was so kind and generous, and um, and said, "Wow, well, I really appreciate that you're so uh, devoted to that." What do you think you would do with us? So they're they're based in New York City, and I was based in the Bay Area in California, um, and I had no answer to that question, and I realized how presumptuous it was of me to just. Fall in love without having anything to bring. Um, so I, I said, I'm right. You're absolutely right. I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I'll try and. Um, I mean, I had a, you know, I was getting a doctorate in um, comparative literature, and I could read dead languages. I didn't really know what I could bring. I didn't know that much about dance, and certainly not about ballet. And I only knew a little bit about drag, uh, mostly from you know the 13th century. So I, I said that I would go away for a year and try and learn something useful. And I. Um, I began to work with a ballet company in the Bay Area, Alonzo King Lines Ballet. And I feel, again, quite fortunate that I found them. I was really just looking for a ballet company so I could learn something about the world. And instead, I found um, Alonzo King and Lines. And that was a a tremendous uh, learning opportunity because all of a sudden I was working with um, deeply thoughtful artists not just a kind of you know um, ballet company where it's like, okay, all the girls should get in line and do what they're told, but a, a company a really diverse company thinking so deeply about what ballet could be. so I learned more than I had bargained for um, and at the end of the year, um, the the people in the company, the creative director, um, asked me what i they were a little puzzled why I was there, and they said, "What do you really want to do here?" And I said, "Oh, I want to be the company manager um." And no one wanted to do that. It's a rough job being a company manager. Um, so they let me. Uh, they let me try that, and I, I. I was a company manager for a year, and then I. Started doing things that I was actually better at, like um, doing some of the writing and research for new ballets, and um, doing a lot of the tour managing in Europe, um, because I. Um, I can also speak French and Italian, so that was helpful. Um, on tours in Europe, and um, and I stayed. With Alonzo King Lines Ballet on and off for several years, um, and really, um, yeah, I learned so much in that time. So eventually, <laughs> um, I I did come back to Tori Dauban at the at La Ballet Trocadéro and um, asked him if I could start, you know, writing about the company uh, now that I knew a little more. And he again, so kindly and generously, allowed me to sit in on rehearsals, and um, I. I accompanied um, the Trocadero on some of their tours, and got to speak with um, the dancers and with Tori, and with the uh, quite amazing um, production people backstage, who uh, you don't get to see so much um, in stories about, you know, dancers and choreographers. What ha- what happens on stage? And uh, the book really grew out of that love. So as soon as I started learning things about one. Company. Then I started seeing what was in the world of drag dance, and um, I was amazed that there that somebody else hadn't already written a book about it. And that may be my particular perspective, but it seemed so fascinating to me. It brings up so many questions that don't that that go beyond people who are into dance, or people who ask about gender, um, or people who are interested in theater. Um, Seem like some of the largest questions that we have about what gender is and how it sits in our bodies and how it is read by other people are being worked out by these artists. And so the whole project became about learning from the artists
1: how to understand that and how to write about that. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fascinating project. So I'm curious uh, about your, your title, right? What do you mean by the afterlives of drag dances? Yeah,
0: I didn't begin with that idea um, I learned that from the artists. Uh, so, when I started talking to people or actually when i when I began asking them questions about how they understood what they were doing, um, they would often use words with me like seance or haunting or um sort of hosting these ghostly bodies in their bodies or channeling, or um they would talk about. Memories of dancers who, um, you know, who were no longer alive and had belonged to these historical periods that they felt were very present, and not only present but sort of inhabiting them. And that's where that idea came from. That um, in dance studies, there's kind of a long and now maybe tired debate about does is dance ephemeral? You know, does it just flame into existence in the moment that it's being performed and then flame out again or does it continue and can you preserve it and things like that Um, and I thought this was and here I'm following the thinking of um of a performance studies scholar named Andrew Lepecky who's at NYU that 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 was not such a helpful way to look at dance and the question of ephemerality Um, because the artists were telling me they didn't see it that way. They saw it in terms of having afterlives that were living of, of dancers who were not them having afterlives that lived in their bodies, if that makes sense.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's uh, something I really appreciate on the book is that it's not necessarily a comprehensive history of drag dances, but you instead you give us like these deep insightful readings of, these five different bodies of work in drag dance and you then frame them using these uh, different concepts. So in that way, I think your book uh, serves uh, at least for me as a template and it should be really you know I- interesting to anyone who is investigating performances that defy you know gender and sexuality normativity. And one of the things that I enjoyed the most reading it uh, is that you open your chapters with these, really evocative descriptions of the dances and performances. I was wondering, where does that language come from? Uh, well, Are you a dancer yourself? <laughs> I often get asked that. Um, and it's very kind of you to say all of these
0: things. Um, I, um, I, Let's see. Well, I can answer the question about where does the writing at the beginning of the chapters come from. I think um, I'm, a, I'm a writer, and writing is my way of, of, of processing um, things of seeing, uh, it's a, it's like a, it's how I take things in. And, um, so I, you know, much of what I, I think what then began, began, what became the beginnings of the chapters were things that I was writing while I was watching grainy video or sitting in rehearsal, um, so that I, I could try to try to avoid the word capture here, but so that I could, um, let it imprint, on me, and the way that I um, then produce something from what is imprinted on me is often through writing. Um, and also, I I like to read vivid dance writing. I appreciate dance writers who um, who aren't doing so much judging and evaluation, um, and are are trying to do more understanding and reflecting and engaging with uh, with the artists or doing the best they can to to tell other people what it seems like it looks like that's always a, you know there's always a risk there um so yes I often get asked if I am a dancer um but I'm not a dancer um yeah I've got you know physical practices of my own but um but I have spent a lot of time (laughs) now with dancers um so uh yeah I do I do now know some backstage things that I didn't know before
1: Gotcha. yeah because you really bring us to the, these performances with you and I ask this because I there is a quote uh, you, you mentioned from Martha Graham where she critiques right people who need words to understand what moves bodies and to a certain extent that's what you're doing here you are using these words to translate to your readers what is moving those bodies and to uh, people like me, who are not dancers and who haven't experienced those performances, it, it was uh, it was really a, a fantastic experience. So I was wondering, how did you decide on the scope of the project? Like why this particular time frame and how did you select the performances and performers that you talk about?
0: Mm, Well, this is related to the question about falling in love with the ballet Trocadero. Um, So it had to begin in roughly in 1974 because that's when the ballet Trocadero began. So in a way that's very arbitrary, but in a way it's very helpful um, because um, it means that many of the artists um, are still around and can talk to you and you can learn from them. so I, I kind of began with that as a sense that, um, as you said, it's not a comprehensive history of all drag dances in all for all time, in all cultures. Um, there are, there's a, yeah, there's a book about drag and theater and, and at least one that tries to do something more like that. Um, but I'm not that kind of writer, I think. Um, so I wanted to try to go, more deeply into a very small number of dances that I thought were illustrative and when I began looking for drag dances in that time frame it very quickly narrowed in a way I hadn't expected because although there is a a rich culture of drag performance much of it is club performance um, or community performance or also private performance Um, so there are traditions you know of course the ballroom tradition, um, but also all kinds of club drag and long-running parties um, and theatrical drag that that are not concert dance. And so limiting it to dance, drag dances that were being staged as concert dance. So like more or less in black box or proscenium theaters for paying audiences who were seeing this in the category of dance, like that it would be reviewed in the dance sections of newspapers and things like that, um, actually produced a surprisingly small number of dances. Um, And I tried to write about those. And of course, as soon as I started writing, I realized how much um, the artists were often in relation to each other. And that was part of what produced a way to write about the afterlives is that people would say to me, oh, my drag foremothers are and it would be someone else I had tried to write about. Or, of course, you know the history of um, Kazo Ono in Butoh, which has deeply influenced me, even for somebody who was not working in Butoh in any way. Mm -hmm.
1: And can you explain this relation that you make in your introduction between uh, what the body looks like and what the body can do and how gender is performed in these drag dances?
0: I can try. I this is a distinction <laughs> I was <laughs> trying to make throughout the book. Um and I I think I'm always looking for a different language uh for this, but a lot of a lot of the ways that drag has historically been taken in the sense of um looked at or read um has to do with surfaces. It's it, it understands uh, gender as a surface and the body as a surface and is is predicated often on, on legibility from the outside. So you can look at someone and say, oh, that person is a woman or as, as often also been said in toxic ways, that person is not a real woman. And I'm really, really trying to get away from that in this book. Um, so... What the, well, the idea of what the body can do is—that's not um, my idea. It's a phrase that gets uh, tossed around a lot. I think um, from Deleuze. Uh, and there's now a book by Ben Spatz, in fact, called "What What a Body Can Do." So it's popular um, beyond beyond my use of it. Um, but I I use it because I'm I'm trying to get away from the sense that we need to stay on the evaluative surfaces of bodies, what bodies look like and say, oh, this body looks like that, therefore it is that. And rather to say, what can this body do? What can we we do with the bodies we have? And I ask myself that question a lot in different contexts, some of them political. So sometimes what we can do with the bodies we have is we can change them in different ways. There are possible transitions and prosthetics for bodies Um, And some things about bodies are just, they just are that way for you as a person living in your body. And that, that has to be um, to me, part of what, what bodies are, not just a tolerated part, but a fundamental part that we, we accept. We all have these, We all have these bodies. We all have these bodies that age. We all have these bodies that are different from each other and will be different from themselves over time. So I tried to write about drag from that perspective as well.
1: Yes, there's one special passage on your book that has stuck with me and it inspired the way I'm approaching my own investigation now. As you say, and I'm quoting you, that when what is supposed to be biologically given is performed, gender is pried away from its ontological certainty. So do you think, uh, what, what would be the role of drag dances in an anti-heteronormative gender politics?
0: Mm. Well, I think in that, in that particular instance, I was trying to explain something about a category of drag that has had different names over time. Um, it sometimes gets called being a faux queen or being a bio queen, which has some... Both of those terms maybe have some problems, but it's uh, you know when someone who's assigned female at birth, so who's a cisgender um, woman, is in drag, is in feminine drag, or sometimes high femme drag, um, and that in itself for some people is is an astonishing concept. Mm, and the question that arises is how can you how can you be in drag as a woman if you're really a woman? And it's, you can ask the same question of men: how can you be a drag queen king if you're already um assigned male at birth um so to just to start there that that in fact um whatever they want to call themselves faux queens um exist and are queens uh so that's what I meant by the ontological certainty is mm-hmm. there is a there is clearly a performing of a kind of gender affect no matter what the, what what your body is assigned at birth um, and so, I guess if there is a way in which that's part of a anti-heteronormative politics, it's it's saying that um, drag is a crystallization and an intensification of a way that gender manifests. and it's a it's a clear performance. People choose to perform it. But in the in the sense that um, that Judith Butler, theorized about gender having performative elements, I think that kind of uh, faux king or faux queen um, mode helps us to see what's not ontologically certain about gender for all of us, those of us who do drag and those of us who don't.
1: Mm-hmm. So and um, as you know, there's been this long debate over whether drag queens are gender conservatives or gender revolutionaries. Where do you stand in that debate?
0: Yes, I <laughs> think this is the one, like the one about is dance ephemeral. Um, so I think you know, drag is a kind of technology in that sense. So some people who use it use it uh, have used it to reinforce misogynist, um, uh, very problematic uh, transphobic, um, boundaries that we're, I hope we're all trying to get rid of. And some people have used it in beautiful, um, and sometimes liberating ways for themselves and for their communities. So I don't, I mean, I would love to say, of course, drag is always revolutionary, but unfortunately that's just not true. You know, it's, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that more people will be able to use it for revolutionary purposes, but certainly it, it has been sometimes used to exacerbate things that are already bad about gender normativity.
1: Yeah, as I, I was mentioning earlier, uh, the book follows you know um, a structure where you uh, in each chapter you discuss this body of dance and, and particular performers and you frame them within uh, a particular concepts. And as a historian, I was uh, particularly intrigued by one of the definitions when you talk about drag dance as a form of embodied historiography or an action history. Uh, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, action history is a term that I borrowed from one of the artists, um, Catherine Cabine, um, who... Um, dances among, she's a choreographer in her own right, and also, um, yeah, does drag in different ways. Um, And so I owe that idea to her. But the idea of embodied historiography, I think, is something that I think all of the artists I'm writing about would recognize as part of their practices, whether they use those words or not. So historiography being not just history itself, but a a way of recording history, a kind of uh, perspective or style even of recording history. Um, And it's related to this, this kind of slightly haunted idea, I think of the seance or of channeling is that you, if you are doing drag in this way as a dancer, dancing is Already so embodied, and you're taking the histories of past dances often that have been lost or that are precarious in some way and re-embedding them, which takes a lot of work and discipline in your own body. And to me that seems incredibly generous, this willingness to to take, for example, in the case of the Trocadero, to take the the, what is left, the memories, the, um, the grief also of so many dancers who were lost to AIDS in the company and around the company. And to, to try to remember them by reincorporating them in the way that you dance and the way that you take class and the way that you perform, um, it seems like a, a quite radical Understanding of what it means to remember or to commemorate, um, and very generous. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's just um, try to walk through the, the chapters and you know the performances and the concepts that you you know you discuss here. And the first one, you are talking about codes and systems of sign and how the dancers you are discussing here can communicate to audiences without necessarily relying on uh, elaborate co- costumes or makeup that a male body person can be read as a female character. Please explain that to folks who haven't yet had an opportunity to read your book or to see these performances.
0: Okay, yeah. So um, I'm writing in this chapter about um, one of the drag dances that probably has been most written about in this um, Context so that's Mark Morris's Dido and Aeneas, and um, Dido and Aeneas is a a dance set to an, set to opera to, to this Henry Purcell piece. And Mark Morris, uh, when he first made the piece, uh, decided that he would dance both of the female lead roles himself. So the queenly Dido and the witchy, malevolent sorceress. And he, I think. Uh, visibly had a great time doing that. They're, they're very, they're challenging roles technically. They're also theatrical. Um, so Mark Morris, not always, but often um, makes choreography where there's um, a kind of legibility to the gesture. So the gestures are um, keyed to the words of the libretto, meaning that, you know, if somebody... Uh, is making the sign. Uh, if the libretto is saying something about happiness, the dancers will often make some kind of sign that visibly looks like happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes even they'll, they'll, you know, sort of act with their faces; they're happy. Um, so this makes the the dances that are like that um, in some way very accessible. You know, it's like you can imagine uh, one one critic, um, Jonah Coachella, said in a loving but kind of um, a critical way. It's like I'm a little teapot, so the word, every <laughs> word goes with it. So not every word in the in Dido and Aeneas is um, is key to a gesture, but many are. And the gendered words, um, so words like queen um, are or hero are particularly important because Mark Morris is a male-bodied person um, who is a cis gay man, and he's performing two female roles, and his costume is not very gendered um so he had to find ways of communicating that people in the audience were supposed to read him as a queen or a sorceress depending on which character he was performing at the time and so luckily though there's a whole history of (laughs) very gendered um codes for things we have this in our lives which is it's culturally specific but you can think of them um, you know, uh, in our cultures as being things like who crosses their legs, um, who bends their arm at the wrist, um, who takes up space on the subway, things like that, um, who shakes hands, who waves in what way, what their fingers do, all these kinds of things. And in, in ballet, they're even more codified. There's a whole, you know, princess hero vocabulary. And he borrowed some of the signs, Mark Morris borrowed some of the signs for, those things from ballet pantomime, which is super clear about like, this is the prince and this is the princess or things like that. Um, So it was, it was slightly more complicated for him to differentiate the queen he was playing from the sorceress he was playing. Um, But he's also a very theatrical dancer and he put a lot of affect into those roles. So Dido as the queen is very queenly. She's sorrowful. She's solemn. She's noble. She's, um, you know, um, tormented in a, in a queenly, harrowed way. And the witch is, the sorceress is extremely witchy and she cackles and she trills her fingers along things. And she, um, you know, she has an evil smile and things like that. So there were, under the sort of broad um, feminine, masculine uh, gender codes, he also was working with kinds of feminine codes um, in order to differentiate those two female characters.
1: Mm-hmm. So then in the following chapter, we, we meet this male-bodied performer who embodies one of dance's greatest digas. And this you discuss as you were uh, talking uh, earlier in terms of a seance or hosting. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, that, that chapter
0: is about um, Richard Move. Um, and I actually don't know these days how Richard is identifying. But when I was writing about Richard, he was using he, him pronouns. So I'm going to use those. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know uh, exactly how he's identifying now. So. Um, but it, uh, in the time I was writing about Richard, uh, he um, is maybe most famous as well for channeling Martha Graham. And those are his words, um, he he often uses the language of channeling and hosting in the seance. Um, And um, so that, that's something that I really uh, learned from, from Richard that, that kind of language it's, it's the way that he relates to, um, to Martha Graham, that she, she is the kind of, that they're kind of Martha together, Richard and Martha Graham. Um, And his history is fascinating. I think it comes out of not only a time in New York when when club drag was really thriving and quite experimental, um, but then he's also trained as a dancer um, and um, he's a performance studies scholar and a filmmaker in his own right. So he has has quite a lot of um, resources to draw on in theorizing for himself uh, what... Um, what this series of performances there have been many Martha at whatever theatre he's at um, and I think it spilled over for him into other things as well he he had a big project on on Ana Mendieta which also has a lot of the language of, um, of the uncanny and the eerie and the ghostly and the haunted and the revisiting yes
1: and so next, we we learned about this aging Japanese Butoh dancer who embodied an Argentinian ballerina. And here you explore this within the concept of admiring as a form of embodiment and speculative historiography. Tell us about that. Um, well, the,
0: the Butoh dancer is Kazu Ono, um, yes. and uh, he's one of the co-founders of, of Butoh. Um, And very late in his life, after he had already sort of retired from the stage, he had a a strange encounter with an abstract painting that reminded him, maybe a reminder is not strong enough, that sparked in him um, a memory of um, a woman named La Argentina, who had been um, a Spanish dancer um, that he had seen decades before and had actually never mentioned, but um, it came out at this, at this late juncture of his life that he had been more than deeply moved by her performance, that something about it had stayed inside of him and it sort of uses a lot of the language of, of gestating and this kind of embryonic thing. So already there, there's a sort of gender um, fluidity um, in his language about Argentina. And he, um, he made a dance, probably his most famous dance, called Admiring la Argentina. And he doesn't, although the, the um, sometimes it gets described as things like impersonating la Argentina, he used the language of admiring. And so I follow him in that. Um, but it's very, it's very intriguing what he means by admiring. He's very attached to dresses, but he's not very attached to the, the precise kinds of movements that she made. And their bodies are very different and their um, trainings are very different and their, the timeframes in which they're performing are very different, casual ono in Argentina. So it's not a, there's not an exactness to that that is about resemblance or um, uh, looking like. Instead, the, the basis, I think, for his um, idea of admiring has to do with something that accounts for the difference between them, but doesn't... Deny that there is a relation that he is in some way um, incorporating her, the history of his memory of her. At least um, Mark Franco writes about this as well. He's a temp scholar, um, and the idea of speculative um, historiography is something that comes more from the uh, the way that chapter ends, and from um, Tragil Harrell, who is still um, making work uh, and. Uh, made a piece about Caso Ono admiring La Argentina called The Return of La Argentina. So this chain is going on that's across, uh, you know, three quite different bodies, um, many decades of time and, um, and three very different traditions of dance training um, between those three people. Um, mm-hmm. and Tragil Harrell like Richard Moove is someone who is quite capable of theorizing his own um, approach to historiography and to um, embodiment as well
1: yeah it's great I really appreciate that you you know you use their um, their own concepts their own ideas right about those dances you respected them in that way so then we get your original muses right uh, <laughs> What uh, and then you, you you talk about their their work as genealogies for a ballet? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yes. So ballet is such a is in many ways such an ossified form, and that has endearing parts. Um, and I think the Trocadero ballerinas are endeared of what is endearing about the ossification of ballet. So all of the you know, the tutus and the, uh, kind of ballerina insanity. Um, and then it has really, really problematic aspects, especially in terms of race and, um, class and it's, yeah, gender normativity. Um, so, um, when I talk you about genealogies for ballet in part, I'm talking about the way that ballet itself conceives of its transmission. So, um, you know who who receives from the master ballet choreographer the who who uh, is allowed to continue the well-protected history of the master ballet? It's pretty um, it's pretty heteronormative and it's been damaging for lots of um, potential ballerinas, among other things. Um so I I admired so much about the Trocadero that not only do they change the the structure, the sort of lineage that they think they come from. So they come from uh, multiple lineages there. They come out of a theater history uh, around Charles Ludlum and the Ridiculous Theater. Um, but they also come out of uh, this time when a kind of ballet was sort of dying, the end of Russian ballet, um, as a, as a form um, that was sort of splintering off into tiny little companies that were fighting with each other. And um, so they they claim for themselves these multiple histories and that in itself is a kind of non-heteronormative genealogy. And then just the way that they think they have the right to inherit ballet and be inclusive about it for others is to me a really admirable way of conceiving something that can often be quite dark because it relies on things like bloodlines and those things in their backstages are quite racialized and normative. And so I love about them that they that they um they make these kind of queer genealogies and they're so much more inclusive and possible for people to participate in. Yeah.
1: And so when your final chapter it discusses right something you've been you were talking about earlier the work of a foe or bioqueen. Mm-hmm. and this you relate with the concept of realness mm-hmm. what, what What does that mean? Well, realness is a is a term that comes out of um,
0: ballroom history, and so it's a term that you know belongs to the history of we are in trans black and Brown communities. Um, in. And so. Um, the person I'm writing about. Is a white cis woman named Monique Jen- Jenkinson. Um, who has for many many years. Been a faux queen. Um, and her. Uh, name as a drag queen is phonique. Because her first name is Monique. Um, so she's. Uh, so her her term for what she is. Is a faux queen. And. Um, and we talked together, she lives in San Francisco and we've known each other for many years, about um, why why terms like bioqueen are are difficult for people because it seems to refer queenness um, and some genders that are attendant upon that to something biological. And um, you know, as we know, this gets into some fairly transphobic ideas about what bodies are allowed to be. So that's where the idea of the phonique of and the faux queen uh, comes from. I think her playfulness around um, being faux comes partly out of some small resistance from male body drag queens in the very, very early years who would say things like, you're not a real drag queen. Um, and I think as awareness around uh, gender inclusivity um, has improved at least in places like San Francisco um that is much uh rarer you know I mean there were early faux queen there was a faux queen pageant I think in 1995 in San Francisco but um now there are so many more um possibilities for who can be a queen or a king um and I'm hoping that that trend continues that it becomes much more inclusive um
1: for people
0: whatever their gender's are and however they imagine those genders
1: well you'll be happy to hear that this year uh one of mexico's biggest drag competitions it's called la mastraga uh, alexis mm-hmm. Tres kisele a bio queen won the competition and she was also voted the best uh, mexican drag queen this year so yeah yay yeah. <laughs> thank you for telling me that yeah so well yes as you note here you you're you know that we have enriched our vocabularies about gender and sexuality, and you suggested that maybe we should start rethinking the term drag. How do you think we can or should do that now?
0: I think just in the way that you, that you just explained, actually. So I, I'm fond of the term drag, um, and many people do identify as drag kings and drag queens. Um, it's got an important political history. Uh, Sylvia Rivera Um, identified as a drag queen, and, you know, she's now an icon of trans history. Um, And there's sometimes, rightly, um, kind of a push forward to change our vocabulary so that there are more inclusive terms for the ways that people really identify and live their lives. But personally, I'm hoping that drag that what drag means will move forward as we move forward, that it won't just be discarded. I think it's Mm -hmm. a term that has been important for people. Um, And I feel like we're hearing this a bit more now from people who are trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming who are saying, not for everyone, but for some people, drag is a, is a way of experimenting with gender. It's like a, it's a space of possibility and If that's part of someone's transition, part of someone's gender, part of someone's um, process or embodiment, then I think drag is still quite important. It's still a a space that's open for experimentation and, and sort of moving through what gender might look like on a given day for someone.
1: Yeah, and I, this book is so timely because it seems like drag is everywhere now, right? It's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mainstream in a way that I think I don't know. It's probably unprecedented. I I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, you had a Trocadero ballerina almost won the the latest installment in RuPaul's mm-hmm. Drag Race, right? <laughs> So, what do you make yeah, it's hard to talk about <laughs> it's hard to talk about drag without talking about rupaul, yeah, so what do you make of this current you know popularization mainstreaming and also commodification of drag? do you think it it can maintain its subversive and political role?
0: I am actually curious about what you think about this as well um, because I think in this way, concert dance is a little bit removed. I mean, as you say, these worlds are linked um but um yeah, I think here I have more of a of a vague hope than an actual prediction. So I I hope that um, you know drag continues to belong to the communities that it belongs to, and isn't just you know um, a feature of like late capitalist reality television. But um, but RuPaul, you know, has been also kind of a a gatekeeper in both the good and the bad sense for, for the visibility and the profitability of drag. So, you know, it's, it's a way for people to have careers in drag. And I recognize that, but at the same time um, it's, you know, he's, he's been um, sometimes transphobic and, you know, um, the community of drag queens mostly and Especially trans women has has tried to be in conversation, I think, with him around that, so that um, this very important, highly visible forum for drag doesn't just reproduce a really limited idea of drag. Um, but I'm curious if you have a view of hope about that. I'm actually <laughs> yes. That,
1: that I'm I'm, I'm really curious to see where we go next, right? Because on the one hand, as you said, we have RuPaul as the gatekeeper. But then we see people trying to, you know, um, take the 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 queen's place, and dethrone mm-hmm. her, so to speak. You have new competitions that are way more inclusive. There is another mm-hmm. one that's that's gaining traction now called Dragula that has the first drag king as well competing with the drag queens mm-hmm. for the spot. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna be mm-hmm. interested and excited to see where this goes next. <laughs> yeah and so um since this is a podcast for and by people who like books uh i like to conclude Mm -hmm. with my three book club questions the first one is if there was any particular book that inspired or informed the body of others that you would recommend to our listeners
0: Mm. it's hard for it's always hard for me to recommend (laughs) one book i think that's a problem being a reader um can i recommend more than one absolutely Um, well, I, I have to say that, um, Monique Jenkinson is writing her own autobiography. So there will be a, I don't know what it's what the title will be, but there will be some kind of memoirs of phonique, um, coming out. And I, I believe that, you know, the writers, um, that the artists and particular dancers who are often told that they don't have the same access to language that writers do, I think they should get to write their own. Um, theories and uh, understandings of these things, so um, that's one forthcoming that i that I am excited to see in the world. Um, i mean i owe I owe debts to lots of earlier scholarship on drag and theater. Um, um, you know, obviously, Judith Butler was one of the people who theorized uh, what drag and Uh, gender, and performance might be. Um, And I particularly like bodies that matter um, in that that sense, and also undoing gender. Um, I think I owe a lot to Jose Munoz um, for not only theorizing this kind of performance, queer performance, performance about gender, but also being such a wicked and charming writer who got so close to the people he was writing about. And I aspire to that kind of, um, that kind of love, I guess, sometimes he would use that word. Um, and then I would just like to acknowledge how much I owe to somebody that I often co-write, uh, with Max Crandall, Who's a poet and a playwright, and also somebody who didn't start out as a dance person and has become one. Um, And yeah, he's got a a book uh, forthcoming um, from Future Poem. So I guess those are two forthcoming books and a debt that I owe to someone um,
1: whose writing I really admire. Oh, wonderful. So, and during the process of of researching this, right, uh, and writing, did you come across any story or a subject or a character that you know you didn't have time or space here to, to discuss, but you wish someone else would write a book about? Well, there's so many. I think that's hard.
0: Um, I think um, I would love to see more work on, um, on Katie Pyle's Ballet's company. I think, I think their work, is uh, not recognized enough um, as a ballet company that is actively featuring um, trans people, lesbian people, gender nonconforming conforming people. Um, and I just think they don't get enough funding or recognition, and I would love to see that change. Um, and there was a, a very early ballerina in the Trocadero's history um, named Anthony Basset, who was... Um, a black ballerina at a time when there were not many black ballerinas. And um, from all accounts was just incredibly talented and charismatic and quite brilliant. Um, and yeah, if I had an extra decade, I would write a biography of Antonin Basse. Wonderful.
1: And what are you working on next?
0: Um, I'm interested in another drag um, figure who is also maybe underrecognized, um, who's Italian, um, named Leopoldo Fragoli, who lived kind of on the cusp when uh, live performance was was being blended with the beginnings of cinema, uh, and he was Italian and uh, was very famous in his time. But I actually found him in a footnote um, in a in a history of early cinema when I was doing research for. Um, a chapter that I wrote about Catherine Galasso's Bring on the Lumiere project um, and that footnote I guess is another one of those love stories where I thought oh, so how is this possible that this um, this drag artist uh, is so little known in English um, and so now I'm quite interested in Leopoldo good,
1: good. well I'm looking forward to that and I hope when it's out you consider uh, coming back to talk to us
0: that's very kind of you
1: Selby, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, Thank you. <laughs> okay. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies. I just spoke to Selby Wynne Schwartz about her book, The Bodies of Others, Drag Dances, and Their Afterlives. It was published earlier this year by the University of Michigan Press. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.